0: Once again, it is my great joy to minister the Word of God to you. The elders have asked me to speak on a topic that I spoke on at the Reformation Preaching Conference, knowing that many of you weren't able to attend there. So rather than returning to Hebrews with our normal exposition, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. I want to speak to you this morning about the gospel according to Jesus. You may be aware that this year we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that rescued countless millions from the bewitching deceptions of Roman Catholicism. The Reformers heralded the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinful man can only be reconciled to a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our sole authority is from Scripture alone, and all of this is to the glory of God alone, consistent with the five solas that adorn this worship center. But dear friends, I would submit to you that the gospel is still under attack, Yes, it's still under attack from apostate religious systems such as Roman Catholicism, but also from ostensibly Christian churches where today the gospel is so distorted, it barely resembles the true gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul was so profoundly disturbed over this very issue that he wrote to the saints in Galatia, saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you into believing things that are simply not true? Who has caused you to lose your sense of discernment and caused you to become so naive that you're adding to the gospel or subtracting great truths from it? And I would submit to you that most seminaries today have been bewitched. Many churches, many pulpits, many bookstores are filled with bewitching aberrations of the one true gospel. And for over 20 years, as I have shepherded this church, and even before that, in the ministries that I was in, I, I had to deal with this. it is a burden of my heart. I mean, today we have the social justice gospel. We have the prosperity gospel. We have the easy believism gospel. We have the felt needs gospel. And on and on it goes. And sadly, people are not being warned about the offended holiness of God. They are not told about The wrath of God that abides on sinners. They do not understand that sin is man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They do not understand that all that man is and all that man does is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. That's the bad news. And you won't appreciate the good news unless you know the bad news. And the good news is that God in his infinite mercy and love has provided a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ who perfectly satisfied the law and died on a cross to bear the wrath that we deserved and became a ransom for all who will trust in him. Dear friends, people are not coming to Christ today, broken over their sin, pleading for undeserved mercy. They frankly see very little need for redemption or reconciliation. Instead, they flood churches all over this country and frankly around the world, looking for the satisfaction of temporal needs. They're consumed with personal fulfillment and personal prosperity. A successful career. Frankly, the stuff of the purpose driven life gospel. And as a result, needs based preaching has replaced expositional preaching. And unfortunately, worship has become man centered rather than God centered. The authority and the power of the Word of God has been undermined. Millennial pastors today are exegeting Hollywood movies rather than the inspired Word of God. The sacred desk of the pulpit has become the psychologist's couch. And sermons are nothing more than self-help seminars. Sadly, the gospel is constantly being reinvented and distorted to somehow meet the demands of the consumer. Like the latest version of an iPhone, we have to have a new gospel all the time to keep people entertained and excited about Christianity. Today, the gospel Jesus preached is considered archaic. It's considered divisive, even offensive. But dear friends, I would submit to you that where there is no gospel, there is no repentance, there is no regeneration, there is no salvation, there is no indwelling spirit. What you end up with is a Christless Christianity. And you have churches filled with counterfeit Christians who profess Christ, but they do not possess him. Paul warned, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So I would submit to you that the need for reformation continues. The battle still rages, and it will continue until Christ returns. So we must continue to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, right, as Jude tells us. So it is my desire as we begin our time together Here this morning that we look at what the gospel truly is by contrasting it with what it's not. And that's what we're going to see here in John 6. So let me give you the context. And don't worry, we're not going to cover every verse. We would There's no possible way we could get through all of that today. Because of the enormous hostility he experienced in Judea, Jesus had to go north into Galilee. And there he made his headquarters in a place called Capernaum and the region surrounding it. And by the time we come to John 6, we know that he has been performing miracle after miracle. He's cast out demons. He's been healing the sick, teaching about the kingdom for about one year. And John 6 is a record of the events of the final days of Jesus' Galilean ministry that's going to end the same way as his Judean ministry with thousands of curious seekers abandoning him in unbelief. Now, as we come to John 6, know that Jesus has just created food out of nothing. Can you imagine if you'd have been there to see that and to eat that? He fed approximately 20, we believe maybe as many as 25,000 people. I mean, this is, this is amazing. And the huge crowd that's following him now, they're, they're absolutely awestruck. I mean, you talk about meeting felt needs. I mean, this is every seeker-sensitive pastor's dream to have that many people eating out of the palm of your hand, so to speak. You would expect people to fall down and to worship him as the son of God, which was his claim. In fact, that was the purpose of his miracles, to authenticate him and his message as coming from God. Remember, John tells us in his gospel in chapter 20 and verse 31 that that these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. But rather than believing in Him as the Son of God, who brings the gift of salvation, they reject Him. But what's fascinating is though they never questioned His supernatural power, and though they even personally had benefited from it, they remained indifferent, in fact, hostile to the gospel that He preached. Now, it's fascinating, in John 6, what we see is Jesus moving away from performing miracles to preaching the true gospel. And I notice I want you to notice what, what happens at the, at the end. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, why is this? It's because they did not want Jesus. Oh, they wanted what he had to offer them on earth, but they did not want him. Instead, like many false professors today that fill up huge auditoriums, they wanted basically two things, supernatural power and personal prosperity. But unlike countless churches today that offer them those things, Jesus offered them what they didn't want. And that was the truth of the gospel. Now, this chapter is about spiritual apostasy. It's about religious deserters, deserters those who, who, who follow Christ, but they are false believers. They are temporary followers. It's about those who really want nothing to do with the Jesus of the gospel, of the true gospel, but a Jesus that they have invented. And we all know people like this. They're in our families, they're in our churches. And I might also add that the pathos in this passage is, is, is heart-wrenching. As you behold our Savior offering himself in light of all that he has done, offering himself to the multitudes, and yet they shake their heads in disgust, and they walk away from him and reject him. So this chapter contrasts true believers with false believers, which helps contrast the true gospel from the false gospel according to man, that is so popular today. Indeed, they didn't want Jesus. They wanted what most superficial followers of Christ want today. Number one, they wanted supernatural power. Notice the text in verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberius. A large crowd followed him. By the way, large crowds It attract even larger crowds, right? That's why megachurches have to have more and more satellite uh, places to, quote, worship. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now, folks, I would submit to you that nothing has changed. People are drawn to the supernatural like flies are drawn to watermelon on a hot summer day. People are utterly fascinated with the paranormal. They are thrilled with the mystical. They want to know more about the realm of the spiritual. You know how people are. And Jesus, of course, is the undisputed miracle worker of miracle workers. They've seen it. They've experienced it. He's just recently cast out demons, caused them to go into a bunch of pigs who ran over the side of a cliff into the sea and perished. He has the power over death and disease and permanent disabilities, and and he can make food out of nothing. He can just speak it into existence. And repeatedly the Gospels describe how people literally trample over themselves to get to Jesus. Vast multitudes of people. False teachers, of course, know how to cash in on this, don't they? They offer false signs and wonders to massive crowds. People are fascinated with proposed healings and mystical experiences and personal revelations, encounters with God, trips to heaven, and on and on it goes. They're not coming because they are broken over their sin and in desperate need of forgiveness. They don't want a righteousness beyond what they have. They're not coming in adoring worship of the Son of God. They're coming to see something supernatural. They're coming to maybe get healed or to learn how to work their own magic for their own purposes so that they can have a better life. Like Simon Magus of Acts 8, who wanted to buy the power. Remember that story? Notice in verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may be- see and believe you? What work do you perform? I mean, This is incredible, isn't it? His miraculous signs were well known to them. They were indisputable. He has just fed about 25,000 people. And you want another sign? Are you kidding me? It's for this reason that Jesus said in Matthew 12, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. In other words, Moses fed all of Israel. You've just fed a few in comparison. Let's see you top that. So Jesus corrects them in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Now, like all who seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, they could not understand the spiritual implication of what Jesus was saying to them. Nor did they really want to, because they're only interested in the physical, not the spiritual. Like people today, they're interested in the temporal, not the eternal. They're interested in the earthly, not in the heavenly. By the way, if that were different, this place would be packed, it would be overflowing today. Verse 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Astounding, isn't it? After all he has done to prove his deity. Well, superficial, selfish seekers are not only motivated by supernatural power, but secondly, by personal prosperity. Go back to verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Isn't it interesting? They wanted a temporal, physical deliverer that would free them from the tyranny of Rome and somehow bring in the promised blessings of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. But they did not want the Messiah himself. These miracle seekers saw him as their meal ticket, not as the Most High God deserving of their utmost reverence and praise, not as their Savior and Lord. For them, following Jesus is all about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. They would follow Christ as long as it suited their purpose. And instead of prostrating themselves in front of him in adoring worship, And in the fear of the Lord, they want to make him king to meet their temporal physical needs. They did not see him as their savior. They wanted a miracle working king that would bring in some kind of earthly utopia. And of course, our politicians tap into this every election cycle. We had eight years of hope and change. And now we've got, I don't know, who knows how long, of Make America Great Again. And people are always worshiping the latest politician, hoping that somehow the world is going to be made right for them. And false teachers offer the same type of thing with their phony social gospel or the prosperity gospel where Jesus is nothing more than some smiley face God that winks at sin or some Santa Claus that hands out the goodies to the people. But what's fascinating is what happens next. And in this brief overview, I hope to clarify and and perhaps highlight at least three aspects of the true gospel that emerge from this text. Now, here's what happens. The next day after all of this, after Jesus fed them, the crowd discovers that he is now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they get in boats, and some of them, no doubt, walked around and probably ran around the top of the Sea of Galilee, around through Capernaum and all the way to the other side to get to Jesus. They are in hot pursuit of Jesus. Thousands of people coming after Jesus. And knowing that they wanted temporal, not spiritual blessings, once they get to him, Jesus exposes their motives. Notice verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, they failed to see the significance of the signs that they witnessed they failed to understand that those signs pointed to Jesus himself, the long-awaited Messiah of prophecy. But their self-interest had blinded them to these truths. They were looking for a God of their own making. And instead of falling down and worshiping him, they are going to try to use him to get him to serve them. And by the way, the enemy is always offering a bewitching, worldly smorgasbord of deceptions that taps into man's penchant for supernatural power and personal prosperity. I've seen this in the steady stream of best-selling books over the years, things I've had to deal with. Let me give you a, a, a few examples. Books like This Present Darkness. You remember that way back? The prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven life, 40 days of purpose, your best life now, wild at heart, the shack, 90 minutes in heaven, and on and on it goes. All of those and so many more are aberrations of the true gospel that appeal to man's longing for supernatural power and personal prosperity. Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes In other words, don't spend your time and your money and energy pursuing things that spoil. But notice he says, work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God has set his seal. So number one... I want you to see that the gospel according to Jesus is a command to earnestly pursue eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone. You see here in verse 27, Jesus is rebuking their purely materialistic notions of the kingdom. He's saying that the father has set his, his approval on me, the son, and he has granted the son all authority Proven by his miraculous works. And he alone is the source of eternal life to all who believe. He alone is the one that is able to distribute spiritual food that will nourish your soul and give you eternal life. So he says, work for the food which endures to eternal life. But they're not looking to him as the source of eternal life. Instead, they're looking at their own ability to perform Works they think that God requires notice verse 28 they said therefore to him what shall we do that we may work the works of God their response betrays not only their spiritual blindness but also the intransigent self-righteousness that dominates their thinking their thinking and this is reminiscent you remember of the the rich young ruler who Ask Jesus, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Well, every religious, false religious system will offer its own list, and Judaism was notorious for this. The list was onerous, and it was endless. And sadly, legalism always offers the illusion of spirituality that only fuels self-righteous pride. And man loves to flatter himself by imagining that that he can do something to merit salvation and make God his debtor. You remember Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, a fastidious keeper of the law. He ultimately comes to Jesus and in essence says, Jesus, how can I get into the kingdom? He knew that his works weren't going to cut it. He knew that. And what's interesting is Jesus did not say, well, if you'll do this and this and this and stop doing this and this and this, you'll make the cut. No, he said, you've got to be born again. God must do something to you. Speaking of the miracle of regeneration. The supernatural instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Back to the text. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered in verse 29 and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the work God requires is faith, believing in him whom he has sent. Stop pursuing the food that perishes and partake of the food that will satisfy your soul forever. And what is that? Notice verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So friends, the gospel is not only a command to earnestly pursue the eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone, but secondly, the gospel according to Jesus is an offer to enter into an intimate, soul-satisfying relationship with Christ. Instead of working for the food that perishes, labor for the food which endures to eternal life, and he says, I am the bread of life. And I would submit to you that this is typically missing In most gospel presentations today because people aren't seeking Christ they're not seeking to be united to Christ frankly for most people in most churches today that doesn't excite them they want supernatural power they want personal prosperity but they don't want the living Christ forgiveness of sins imputed righteousness All those things are are nice, but it's not all that exciting. You see, the idea of entering into an intimate relationship with the living Christ and enjoying the soul-satisfying, soul-exhilarating joy of his presence in their life is something that, frankly, is an afterthought to most seekers today. It was then, it is today. And worse yet, I believe this is foreign to many people who fill up churches today. I've learned to interact with professing Christians at this level from time to time when I can, and I will often ask them, well, I'm curious, tell me about your walk with Christ. And all of a sudden, there's a strange dynamic that takes place. It's as if they don't know what to say. Because many professing Christians don't really have a walk with Christ. They don't have a vital union with the living Christ, with the lover of their soul. They've got a vital union with the country club that they go to called a church. But not with Christ. In fact, for many Christians, heaven would be just fine if Christ never showed up. But to the true disciple, Christ is absolutely everything. He alone is the satisfaction of our soul. Like Matthew thirteen, remember, Jesus described how that Christ is ultimately like a, like a treasure hidden in a field that is so valuable a man would sell everything to possess it. He went on to describe the priceless pearl that was so valuable that a man would do everything he could to sell his possessions and purchase it. Oh, child of God, I pray this is the testimony of your heart. The greatest joy of the gospel is Christ himself. Are you here today because you love Christ and you can't wait to come and to fellowship with him, with his people, and sing praises to his name? Or is this just something that we do in the South? On Sundays, Paul said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in Ephesians three, you remember, he gets on his knees before the father and he prays for the saints in Ephesus and by extension for all of us saying Asking that, that the Father would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And here it is, to know, intimately know, The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Beloved, this is the indescribable blessing that comes when we eat of the bread of life and we take him in. Christ is all we want. Christ is all we need. He's the greatest joy of our heart. The preoccupation of our mind. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's saying, take me in, and I will satisfy every desire of your soul. Later in verse 56, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, folks, this is so compelling to me as a pastor. Let me tell you why. Here you have a massive crowd following after Jesus, motivated by a desire for supernatural power and personal prosperity. But what does Jesus offer them? Himself. That's it. I am the bread of life. And when Jesus says, I am, he is appropriating for himself the Old Testament name of God, of of Yahweh. Remember when he told Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 14, I am who I am. And then later on, he says, tell the people that I am sent you. You will recall in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39, where, where they are speaking of, of, of the Lord as Yahweh, who vindicates his people. And he says, see now that I, even I, am he. Jesus is God he refers to himself in the present continuous tense. In other words, he's saying that I am the one who has always and will always exist. I am. It denotes self-existence. There has never been a time when I did not exist. I am the preexistent, self-existent, eternal one, the uncreated creator of the universe who is and always will be. And the Jews would have understood this, and that's why they were so furious with him. This is the title he used, you remember, to respond to the enemies that came to arrest him in the garden. Remember in John 18, 6, it says, So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Amazing, isn't it? John was an eyewitness of that account, and it's still so vivid in his memory that 50 years later, when he wrote this in John 6, he's still thinking about it. Here in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is the first of seven, seven very important metaphors in John's gospel describing the person and the work of Christ. Later on in chapter 8, he is going to say, I am the light of the world. He is going to say in chapter 10, 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. Beloved, at the very heart of the gospel is the offer of Jesus, the great I am. And all of the glorious provisions that are inherent in his name and his person and his work. He is Savior. He is Lord. And it's heartbreaking to think that so many churches today are filled with people that have no grasp of the ineffable glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. They see Jesus as their as their life coach or as some kind of mystical force like Star Wars. May the force be with you and all that goofy, idiotic stuff that people buy in and incorporate in their religion. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But I said to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I'm convinced that by now Jesus' eyes are filling with tears, grieving over their unbelief despite all that he has done. And what Jesus says next is so exceedingly offensive to the fickle crowd of deserters, and yet it's so exceedingly instructive to his disciples and to all of, all of us. And folks, here we learn where we must go theologically. When we experience the pain of seeing people, sometimes in our own family, reject Christ, sometimes the pain is unbearable, isn't it? And here we see that Jesus finds solace in sovereign grace, knowing that man cannot believe apart from it. Notice verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The gospel according to Jesus is not only a command to earnestly pursue eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone, and also an offer to enter into an intimate soul-satisfying relationship with him. But thirdly, the gospel according to Jesus is anchored upon the sovereign grace of God, who alone imparts spiritual life to the spiritually dead. The people didn't want to hear it like most people today. I want to camp on this for a moment, what Jesus says here in verses 36 through 40, because it will help you understand some of the essential yet often maligned truths that Jesus preached. These are soteriological truths, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, truths pertaining to salvation that are at the very heart of the gospel and are often summarized and clarified, and certainly they were during the Reformation under the heading of Calvinism. You will recall John Calvin was a 16th century theologian, who had a profound influence on the Protestant Reformation. And he held, he held to a very high view of scripture and therefore championed God's sovereignty in salvation. And it's often explained under the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity also known as total inability or original sin. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement or sometimes known as particular redemption. The I stands for irresistible grace and the P for the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. These strong distinctives are found all through Scripture in fact, all five points of Calvinism can be seen by what Jesus told the multitude who wanted another sign before they would believe in him. Notice what he says in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Dear friends, there's the T in the tulip, total depravity or total inability. Man is so ruined by sin that it is impossible for him to respond to the gospel apart from regeneration. We have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin, Romans five twelve. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, and so many other passages, passages that speak to this. The gospel is not merely, as some will say, throwing out a life preserver to a drowning man and then pleading with him to somehow grab it so that he can be saved. You must understand that biblically, man is spiritually dead. Left unto himself, man is a decaying corpse floating on top of a sea whose current is going to take him into hell. There is nothing that he can do to respond to the truth of the gospel. No amount of verses of just as I am no amount of manipulative, tear-jerking stories can possibly get him to believe. Unless God breathes life into that spiritual corpse and gives him the gift of faith, he will not believe. Moreover, he cannot believe. Second Corinthians 2 and verse 14, we read that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because he is spiritually appraised. He has no capacity to discern spiritual truth apart from divine initiative. So verse 36 speaks of total depravity. Notice in verse 37, we have the you and the I in the tulip. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There you have unconditional election and irresistible grace. And we see this all through Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose an elect group of people by his uninfluenced will. A group of people that he would someday save and left unto ourselves. We are unable to know him. We're unwilling to seek him. Unless God takes the initiative and then when he does, when he causes us to be born again, we no longer resist the grace of God. But we freely and we joyfully respond as a result of the Spirit's work of regeneration that creates within us a renewed mind, a renewed heart, a renewed will. Notice verse 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There you have the L, limited atonement, or better, particular or specific redemption. Now think about this, what is the will of the Father who sent Jesus? Well, his will was for Jesus to actually, not potentially, atone for the sins of the people whom the Father had given him in eternity past. That's what John 17 is filled with. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And what does he do as he's preparing to die? He prays to the father for all whom the father had given me. You see, Jesus is not the propitiation for everyone who has ever lived. If so, there would be no one in hell. But Jesus actually, not potentially, But he actually satisfied the wrath of God toward his elect by taking their judgment upon himself. He actually redeemed him. He actually reconciled those specific persons to God. You might say Jesus got what he paid for. In Ephesians 5.25 we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's one of the most motivating doctrines in all of Scripture to know that when Christ died on the cross, he knew me personally and he bore my sins specifically in his body. Jesus expands on this very theme in verses thirty-nine through 40. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. It referring to the body of the elect. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There, dear friends, you have perseverance of the saints, or better, the perseverance of God with the saints. We are eternally secure in Christ. God perseveres with his elect. He keeps us from falling away. And if he did not do that, certainly we would. And perseverance then becomes the ultimate proof of election. So in summary, these essential truths are foundational to the gospel. Salvation is all of God's sovereign grace from beginning to end. Well, the Jews resented all of this. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't get past his claim to deity, that he was, quote, the bread that came down out of heaven, verses 41 through 43. So we read that they grumble against him. They knew his earthly father is Joseph. But come on, your heavenly father is is God? We're not buying that. And they certainly rejected his claim to be the source of eternal life and his calls for repentance and faith as a prerequisite for entering the kingdom. And worse yet, they resented Jesus demolishing their whole system of works righteousness can you imagine the pain that Jesus must have felt knowing all of this after all of his miracles? Notice again how he finds comfort in divine sovereignty. And this is so instructive to his disciples, his true disciples, certainly to us. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, sinful man is powerless to change his nature. He's hostile to God. Biblically, he's spiritually deaf and dumb. He's incapable of embracing spiritual truth. He is powerless to come to Christ on his own free will. So how can he be saved? The Father must draw him. And yet it will be the sinner's responsibility to come to Jesus. Jesus commands them to come and believe, in verse 35. And here we have that inscrutable mystery. Scripture is clear that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation, yet man is morally responsible to believe. And if he doesn't, he will be held accountable. Now, both of these propositions are true. Both of them must be embraced simultaneously. But here we have... A mysterious tension between the two both propositions must be maintained and respected and never considered incompatible and dear friends I would submit to you that the as soon as you try to explain these things you cease to be biblical here Jesus makes it clear that God must take the initiative in salvation And notice how God does this. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the Father's drawing includes teaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, no man can be drawn to Jesus who has not first heard and learned of the Father. That's why we can never be ashamed of, ...of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And this results in supernatural, internal illumination and transformation... ...that causes a sinner to run with outstretched arms to Jesus. That's the irresistible drawing of sovereign grace. And I hope that you young ministers who are listening to me today... ...and you parents, all of you who work with with anybody and present the gospel... I hope that these great soteriological truths are the underpinnings of the gospel that you preach. Otherwise, what you will end up doing is compromising and preaching some kind of a synthetic gospel that is more acceptable to man, but at odds with God. It's not hard to visualize the disgusted and confused look on the faces of the crowd. It happens next in this scene I've seen it here many times over the years in other places notice in verses 48 through 58 Jesus reiterates his claim to be the bread of life in verse 53 he says unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day now folks the people who were hearing this, knew that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. Jesus went on to make that clear. He's simply saying that you've got to accept my death. You have to embrace my work on the cross. I must die as your substitute to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God that you have offended. But catch this. Superficial, self-centered seekers do not want to hear any of this. They're not really interested in forgiveness. They have no desire to hear about the imputed righteousness of Christ. They don't want to hear sermons on the atonement. They're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, because after all, they see themselves as pretty much righteous enough. After all of the scales of divine justice, their good works basically balance out their bad, so they're going to make the cut. And they certainly don't want to hear about the doctrines of grace because man has an insatiable appetite for being in charge of his own life and self-determination. So in verse 60, they say, this, this is a difficult statement. Who can understand it? You see, again, counterfeit Christians are always offended when they hear spiritual truth because it cannot be reconciled with their own distorted, man-centered theology. So in verse 61, they grumble against him. And Jesus says, does this cause you to stumble? Well, obviously it does. But again, it's fascinating that Jesus does nothing to remove the offense of anything that that he has said. Instead, he leans heavily on sovereign grace. Once again, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. You see, the will of the natural man has nothing to do with salvation. John 1.13 expressly declares that the new birth is not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is saying, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The great English Bible expositor A.W. Pink said this, What is needed today is less anecdotal preaching, less rhetorical embellishment, less reliance upon logic, and more direct, plain, pointed, simple declaration and exposition of the word itself. Sinners will never be saved without this. The flesh profits nothing. So Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Certainly he was speaking of Judas, who was the quintessential example of a false believer who only wanted supernatural power and personal prosperity. And he was saying, for this reason, because of their unbelief, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father." Once again, Jesus reinforces the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to believe. Men are commanded to believe, and they are held accountable if they don't. And yet, they will never believe unless God takes the initiative and overpowers their sin nature. Once again, an inscrutable mystery that seems incompatible in our mind, but is perfectly compatible in the mind of God. And as a result of this, verse 66... Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There, my friends, we have the greatest church split in history, right? Jesus reduced a crowd of 25,000 down to a handful in just a matter of minutes. And frankly, the same would happen today in most churches if the true gospel were preached. Dear friends, I would submit to you, That you can either be popular or you can be faithful, but you can't be both. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you not want to go away also? Don't you know Jesus was probably crying at this point? You guys want to leave too? Everybody else is leaving. You want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, dear child of God, preach the gospel that Jesus preached. Never shy away from the great doctrines of grace. Now, that doesn't mean that you run around and you cram tulips down the throats of unsuspecting Arminians. There's nothing more offensive to that than that. But keep it in mind. Don't shy away from it. I've had... Many pastors say to me, Pastor, I believe those things with all my heart, but if I were to preach those things, I would lose my job. People would run out of my church. And my thought is, so what's your point? Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Yet Satan, we know, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of Christ. He has blinded them to the truth of the gospel by creating false gospels. And I would humbly ask you, don't become a co-conspirator to his calumny. Preach the true gospel. And you young pastors that may be hearing me today, don't promote yourself by preaching something that will appeal to the crowd. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. And ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's nothing special about us, any of us. What's special is what's in us because of Christ. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be from God and not from ourselves. Dear friends, let's preach the true gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.